This week, we are beginning a new sermon series um, called Life of a Disciple. What we're doing is, uh, this is the first week of Lent, which is the, the season in the church where we begin to think about and look forward to uh, the Good Friday service where we celebrate the death or remember the death of Jesus and Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And in these weeks, as we lead up to what is really the central event in the Christian story, we are trying to think together about just what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to do this whole weird faith thing? Now, the Christian, like Christianese word that we use um, for, for being uh, someone who cares about Jesus is this word disciple. Right? Jesus, when he was on earth, gathered together uh, 12, really there were more than 12, but there were 12 in particular, uh, disciples, people who would follow Jesus, who would learn from Jesus, who would try to imitate Jesus, and then people who were eventually sent out by Jesus. So we're going to be thinking about what does it mean to be a disciple, to be someone who follows Jesus. And the basic idea of this series is that following Jesus is about connection. It's about connection. And connection is what we're all about here at Hope. You just heard about our connect cards, right? Our mission at Hope is to connect people to the tangible love of Christ. We live in a culture and a society that could be very easily characterized by disconnection, by isolation. We live in a culture where loneliness is an epidemic. And we believe that we were created and built to connect. And so in this series, we're going to say, Craig talked about this last week, that being a disciple, someone who follows Jesus, is about connecting in three different ways. It's about connecting up to God. It's about connecting in to an unconditional community. And it's about connecting out uh, to a, a purpose of service in the world. And the way that we're going to do it in these series, because we're thinking about being a disciple, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a bunch of stories in the gospel of Luke of Jesus with his disciples. So we're going to look at stories about Jesus with his disciples to learn about being a disciple. Um, The passage for this morning, this morning is from Luke chapter 24. Um, If you have Bibles or a phone, you know, you do you, uh, I would encourage you to open up to this passage. So Luke chapter 24, it's a little long, bear with me, but we're going to begin with verse 13. It might be on the screen, I don't know. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Clepas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So in this uh, passage, we have a story of these two disciples who are traveling from the city of Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has died, a couple days after, and they've heard reports that Jesus has been raised, but they haven't seen him yet. And then on the way, Jesus joins them. At first, they don't recognize him, but eventually when they reach their destination and Jesus breaks bread with them, an imitation of the Lord's Supper, they recognize who Jesus is. What I want to do is ask four questions this morning about connecting um, based on this passage. So the four questions are, who do we connect to? Why do we connect? Where do we connect? And how do we connect? Okay? So first of all, who do we connect to? I think the answer to this is probably pretty obvious, right? (laughs) We connect to Jesus. At the heart of everything we do in Christianity is connecting to the person of Jesus. And what happens in this story, the whole reason this story is a story is because at the beginning, in verse 17, it says that they were kept from recognizing him. And then at the end, in verse 31, their eyes are open and they recognized him. This is a story about disciples who in the beginning don't recognize Jesus and aren't connecting with him. And then by the end of it are recognizing Jesus and are connecting with him. So this brings a really simple question to us. And that is, do you recognize Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? I've said this before up here, but I'm so convinced that as Christians, 
Everything that we do that's wrong, everything we believe that is wrong, comes ultimately from thoughts about God that are wrong. That as Christians, we need to spend time making sure that we think about God rightly, that we understand just who Jesus is. And if we grasp who Jesus is, then I promise that will have incredibly huge ramifications for every single part of your life. So who is Jesus? How do we answer this question? Well, clearly there are a multitude of ways you could answer the question, who is Jesus? What I want to do, I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible, uh, even though this question deserves a much longer answer than I'm giving it, is to focus a little bit on what Luke says about Jesus. Since we're in the Gospel of Luke, what does Luke say about Jesus? And I think Luke's sort of theology of Jesus can be summarized in these four titles that um, he gives to Jesus. And the four titles are Son of Adam, Son of David, Son of Man, and Son of God. Um, First, Son of Adam. Uh, This idea of Jesus being the Son of Adam, we mainly see this much earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, when Luke gives a genealogy of Jesus, right? So he traces all of Jesus' descendants, um, ancestors. Um, What's super interesting about the genealogy in Luke is that it's really different from the other genealogy of Jesus that we get in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They each give a little bit of a different perspective on Jesus, Matthew and Luke both have genealogies of Jesus, but they are different. And the biggest difference between these two genealogies is that the genealogy in Matthew traces the ancestors of Jesus all the way back to Abraham, a patriarch of Israel that we read about in the first book of the Bible. And the reason Matthew traces it back to Abraham is because he wants to make a connection between Jesus and Abraham and between Jesus and the nation of Israel. But Luke traces the ancestors of Jesus, not all the way back to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Adam, the first human being that we read about in the first couple chapters of the Bible. And the reason Luke does this is because he wants to say that Jesus is the new Adam. That Jesus is like Adam in certain ways, but he's better and greater in every way that counts. Right? Jesus was, I mean, Adam was the first human who began this new era of human history by just being the first human. But then Jesus is this second Adam who creates a new era of human history by cleansing them from sin and bringing them into right relationship with God. Right? Adam fell to the temptation of the devil. Jesus succeeded when he was tempted by the devil. Adam made a mistake and did one action that brought sin into the entire world. And then Jesus on the cross through one action cleanses the world from that sin. So Jesus is this new Adam who begins this new era of human history and fixes the wrongs uh, that, um, that Adam's legacy left on humanity. Second is son of David, right? So son of David, uh, we see this in Luke chapter 1 when um, 
the birth of Jesus is announced to Mary. Luke chapter 1, verse 27, we read about Mary, who's pledged to be married to Joseph, who's a descendant of David. Then in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the angel says to Mary that Jesus will be great, will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Right? So David was a king of Israel in the Old Testament, a king that was, uh, for the most part, really, really good and really righteous. He represented the high point of the nation of Israel when they were still united, when they had a lot of territories and were successful in battle. And the Lord made a promise to David that he would have a kingdom and a throne that would last forever. But, spoiler alert, right? David's kingdom didn't last forever, right? His throne failed. Uh, the kingdom was conquered and eventually brought into exile. But what Luke is saying is that Jesus, a descendant of David, comes and he inaugurates the kingdom that was promised to David, that David started this earthly kingdom, but Jesus begins a heavenly kingdom. That the kingdom of David ultimately failed, but the kingdom of Jesus is one that is eternal, that will never fail, that will never end. Third, son of man. I think of all the ones up here, this is probably the one that's most misunderstood. Um, if you've heard people talk about this phrase, son of man, it's, it's really strange. Uh, first of all, Jesus calls himself the son of man in the gospels. Um, and it's really only a title that is used by Jesus of himself. Uh, you may have heard people say before that son of man is a, is a title that talks about Jesus' humanity. Um, I think there might be one or two places where that's true, but I think generally that's false, right? Uh, son of man isn't a distinction of humanity. It doesn't just mean like, I'm the son of this dude, so I'm just like a regular dude, right? Um, son of man, when Jesus calls himself son of man, is a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel. So you may remember the story of Daniel. He's famous for uh, being in the lion's den and not being hurt. But in uh, Daniel chapter 7, he has this vision. And in the vision, he says, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision of one like a son of man coming on the clouds. It's this incredible cataclysmic, apocalyptic event in which this heavenly figure comes in and drastically changes all of human history from an old era to a new era. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's referring to this apocalyptic vision of Daniel, and he's saying that I am this figure. But what's, what's even cooler about it is that 
in the gospel of Luke, son of man is a, this cataclysmic apocalyptic idea, but it's always connected to Jesus' passion and death. So in Luke chapter 17, verse 22, we're just, we're just going all over the place today. It's great. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning with, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus takes this title of Son of Man, this incredible uh, vision of the end times that someone will come and drastically in an instant change everything. And Jesus says, yes, that's me, but I'm going to do it by suffering and dying. So then the last one is Son of God. Son of God is used a bunch of different times in the Gospel of Luke. I just want to look at two places and show you that Luke uses it both near the very beginning of the Gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel is announcing again the birth um, of Jesus to Mary. And the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. God. And then near the end of the gospel in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders. And then in verse 70, they ask him, are you the son of God? And Jesus replies, you say that I am. So Luke both begins and ends his gospel by calling Jesus the Son of God. Son of God is this title that expresses Jesus' incredibly unique relationship with God the Father. A relationship where he is so close to God the Father that he in fact shares his essence, his character, and his nature. And in the Gospel of Luke, this title Son of God never appears spoken by a human, right? It's always spoken by God, by angels, by demons, or by Jesus himself. Luke shows that it is supernatural revelation that depicts Jesus is the son of God. In fact, the one who has this incredibly close relationship with God and is divine himself. So Jesus, son of Adam, son of David, son of man, son of God, sisters and brothers, we have the opportunity to know and to connect with this Jesus. How could we want anything else? If Jesus really is this, then pursuing him should be the primary purpose of your entire life. Okay, so that was all point number one. Who do we connect to? (laughs) Second, why do we connect? Why do we connect? 
Uh, back in Luke chapter 24, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, in verse 32, after they recognized who Jesus is and then Jesus disappears, they say this incredible thing to each other. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? Were not our hearts burning within us? I think this is a great encapsulation of, of not the only reason, but one of the reasons why we connect to Jesus. We connect to Jesus because he sets our hearts ablaze. We connect to Jesus because it's in Jesus that we find the true life that God intended for us. Because in Jesus, there is a rich, deep feeling of peace, of contentment, of passion, of joy. This experience of uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus is also not unique. There are Lots of stories of Christians experiencing this kind of thing throughout history. One example is um, of a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was an English uh, theologian and evangelist who lived in the 1700s. Uh, He started this revival movement that eventually gave birth to uh, what is today Methodism and the Methodist Church. Uh, He writes in his journal about the moment that he was converted. Uh, it was on Wednesday, May 24th, 1738. And he writes this in his journal. He says, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one person was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Right? So one night in London, he goes to this place and uh, he doesn't even want to go. And someone is reading, I think this is so hilarious, the preface to the epistle to Romans, right? So not even reading the book of Romans, reading Martin Martin Luther's preface. Then he says, at a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I think there's this like beautiful understatement um, to what Wesley says here. And I think it's something that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can resonate with. Sometimes there's Just a deep warmth, a deep peace in knowing Jesus that you could try to put all these lofty words to, but sometimes it doesn't express it. And that doesn't mean following Jesus always feels that way, and it doesn't mean it's always easy. I could show you a bunch of passages where Jesus promises that following Jesus will be incredibly difficult. But there is a warmth, a contentment, a peace, and a joy to connecting with Christ that is unlike anything else this world has to offer. So that's why we connect. Third, where do we connect? Now, where do we connect might seem like a strange question, and it is. 
And the reason I ask this question is just because I want to show you something really cool that I think is going on in the Gospel of Luke, right? I'm, a PhD, I'm getting my PhD in the Bible. I'm a nerd. But I want to share that with you. Okay, so at the end of this passage, in verse 25, it says, the two verse 35, the two disciples told what happened on the way. Now, this idea of being on the way or on the road, same word in Greek, translated different ways in different Bibles, um, is a really important idea for the author of the Gospel of Luke. Okay, So the author of the Gospel of Luke wrote Luke. Um, his name was also Luke. That's why it's named that. Uh, but he also wrote the other book in the New Testament, Acts. Right. So Luke and Acts are sort of two volumes to the same work. Or you could think of Luke as the first uh, book and then uh, Acts as the sequel. But they're two works that are closely related. And the idea of being on the way is really important in each of these books, but it plays out slightly differently. So in the Gospel of Luke, um, I have a super rough outline of what the Gospel of Luke uh, looks like. In the first four chapters, we have the story of the birth and the preparation of Jesus for ministry. Then in chapters 4 through 9, we get stories of Jesus doing ministry in Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel. Then what happens from chapters 9 through 19, we get this long story of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Right? So chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says that Jesus sets his face to go towards Jerusalem. And then for the next 10 chapters, you get a bunch of stories of things that happen to Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem. And through those 10 chapters, periodically, Luke will kind of remind you that uh, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He'll be like, as they were going to Jerusalem, or as they were traveling through these cities, or as they were going along, right? Reminding you that Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. And then in the last chapters, um, 20 to 24, we get the story of Jesus in Jerusalem and his passion and resurrection. So there's this huge chunk of material in the middle of Luke that is entirely focused on Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. So what happens in the Gospel of Luke is we kind of have this coming in. Everything like starts kind of wide and then it comes in towards Jerusalem as Jesus goes on the way towards Jerusalem. But then in volume number two in the book of Acts, we kind of have the exact opposite. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is often considered kind of the thesis statement of the book where Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so then what happens is the rest of the book of Acts tells the story of the early church and it follows this outline. It begins in Jerusalem, then it moves out a little bit to Judea and then north a little bit to Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. Right? Throughout the book of Acts, also, Luke doesn't call Christians Christians. He calls them followers of the way. He calls them followers of the way. Okay, so we have this really cool thing. In Luke, we have this coming in towards Jerusalem as Jesus goes on the way to Jerusalem. And then in Acts, we have this coming out from Jerusalem as Christians, followers of the way, take the gospel with them, right? 
So this is a really cool theological thing that Luke is doing. And the whole point of it is to say that Christians are people who follow in the way of Jesus. Right? In the Gospel of Luke, it emphasizes how Jesus is moving towards the death and resurrection. And then the Christians who are living on the way are living in the way of Jesus. What this means for us is that connecting with Jesus is not something that's limited to an hour or an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's not something that's limited to the you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes you spend reading your Bible and praying. Connecting with Jesus is something that happens as you live your life on the way, on the road. Right? When you're in your car commuting to your work, as hard as it is, is to believe, when you're on the path train, right? as you are moving from your cubicle to your break room, right? you connect with Jesus on the way. Life is a journey. It's a sacred journey. One in which Jesus is always there with us. And you are invited to connect with Jesus on the way. So then our last question, how do we connect? How do we connect with Jesus? Now, there's a bunch of different ways that we could connect with Jesus, so I just want to mention one that is important in this story, and that is through Scripture. We connect with Jesus through Scripture. The Bible is mentioned a couple different times in this story. In verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The prophets referring back to parts of the Old Testament. Then in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then in verse 32, they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I know that reading the Bible is like really hard and super weird. And it's this ancient document that contains a lot of really strange stuff, right? I get that. Sometimes you open the book and you're like, what on earth does this have to do with my life, right? But I think what we need to do is many of us need to switch how we think about reading the Bible, Because often we open this book and the first question we ask is like, what does this mean for my life? Or how does this apply to my life? And that's not a bad question, but it's a bad first question. We need to think of the Bible as this incredible story in which we get to see God at work with God's people. Reading the Bible is not about giving commands or instructions how to live. It's not primarily about that. Reading the Bible is primarily about seeing who God is and what God is doing. So when you open it up to a passage, your first question shouldn't be, how does this apply to my life? Your first question should be, what does this tell me about who God is? Christians believe that this is a divinely inspired book that is meant to reveal to us the character and the nature of God. And if there's some book that can teach you who God 
is. And you would just be an idiot not to read it, right? Not that you're an idiot. I don't read it as often as I should either, okay? We're all idiots together. Um, But this is a chance. The Bible is a chance for you to connect with God. So, all of this, who do we connect to? We connect to Jesus, the son of Adam, son of David, son of man, son of God. Why do we connect? Because Jesus sets our hearts ablaze. Where do we connect? We connect with him on the way. And how do we connect? We connect with him through scripture. So this ultimately just has sort of one takeaway point, and that is connect with Jesus, which then leads to the obvious question, do you know Jesus? Um, Phil and the band, you guys can come up now. Um, whenever I think about this simple question, I am reminded of a quote by a guy named S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge was a pastor in um, San Diego who died in 2000. And he had a really great way, I think, of just explaining and um, characterizing who Jesus is. He said, The Bible says that my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seen telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. The only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. Do you know him? He supplies strength to the weak. 
He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness, and he's the highway of holiness. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he is indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You just can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands and you can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. And his is the kingdom. And his is the power. And his is the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Sisters and brothers, connect with Jesus. He is amazing and he is worth it.